Well, Happy New Year. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're a returning customer, welcome back. I sincerely hope you had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I pray that you were able to navigate the craziness, the hustle and or bustle, the commercialization, and were able to keep Christ at the center of Christmas. I know a cliche saying, but true nonetheless. God willing, in 2024, for Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast, I'll continue to bring you just scads of information on a variety of topics ranging from mainstream to obscure, asking questions that need to be asked, searching for answers that must be out there somewhere, all while keeping the truth found only in the Bible in focus. I'll continue or restart my goal updates at uh, a frequency as of yet to be determined. I firmed up my goals, set up my tracking system, restructured my daily schedule, and... Well, we'll see what happens. I've also got some ideas for other small segments to tack in every once in a while, but those won't happen for a little while as I need to noodle them out a bit more before starting. Anyway, it's enough of the boring housekeeping. Let's get Season 3 started. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. In 1998, an episode of South Park yes, I know, just go with me here, featured a likeness of Johnny Cochran. Now, you may know him as the lawyer in the O.J. Simpson murder trial who said the now famous line regarding the bloody glove, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Defending a record company against one of the main characters, Chef, for a composer claim. Anyway, Cochran starts to give his closing argument to the jury, and as he reveals an all-too-familiar picture, he says, But ladies and gentlemen of this supposed jury, I have one final thing I want you to consider. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chewbacca. Chewbacca is a Wookiee from the planet Kishik, but Chewbacca lives on the planet Endor. Now think about that. That does not make sense. Why would a Wookiee, an eight-foot-tall Wookiee, want to live on Endor with a bunch of two-foot-tall Ewoks? That does not make sense. But more importantly, you have to ask yourself, what does this have to do with this case? Nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, it has nothing to do with this case. It does not make sense. Look at me. I'm a lawyer defending a major record company, and I'm talking about Chewbacca. Does that make sense? Ladies and gentlemen, I am not making any sense. None of this makes sense. And so you have to remember, when you're in that jury room deliberating and conjugating the Emancipation Proclamation, does it make sense? No. Ladies and gentlemen of this supposed jury, it does not make sense. If Chewbacca lives on Endor, you must acquit. The defense rests. Now, what does that have to do with anything here, besides just being a funny segment from years gone by in a cartoon I probably shouldn't have been watching, but I was in college and we were all watching it together. Ladies and gentlemen, on today's episode, things do not make sense. First, we're going to enter into a knockdown, drag-out battle with Satan himself, and then we're going to discover that no matter the outcome, the outcome will always be the same. So start practicing your victory dance. Unless you're Baptist, in which case practice your victory, standing there quietly in solemn reverence so as to not be guilty of dancing, and grab your cowboy gear, your hat, your boots, your spurs, your chaps, your fishing pole, because even though this does not make any sense, which is obviously Wookiee for here we go. One of the interesting things about doing this podcast is that I know for a fact, from time to time, I irritate everyone. I mean, I don't intend to... Most of the time I don't intend to, but I mean, come on, sometimes it's fun to poke the hornet's nest just a little bit, right? <laughs> but as I said in episode zero, the intro episode, uh, let me just let's take a second here. I say this a few times a year. If you go back and listen from the beginning, I mean, if you think these current episodes are bad, the first uh, one or two dozen of them, oh man, just look, just understand that I know it, you know it. I know you know, you know I know. We can all just move on with life, okay? Anyway, if you if you go back to episode zero, I said something to the effect that although I'm clearly a far-right Christian conservative, I'm not coming at this podcast from a point of being an apologist for the right. I just read things, think things, investigate things, and then I give you a mix of facts and opinions and let you decide what you want to do with it from there. If you agree with me, great. If you don't, 
Okay, well, look, this is where I'm supposed to say, I'm almost obligated to say that it's okay that you're wrong sometimes. But seriously, if we don't agree, that's okay. We all need to work through some of these issues on our own and decide how we want to think of them. So I give that lead in because I have a distinct feeling that coming from a conservative Christian worldview, knowing that if you're listening to the Logical Christian Podcast, you're likely also a Christian conservative, I'm just not going to have a lot of people that agree with my opinion. But hear me out and then go from there. We're going to wander through a number of articles as we walk out a timeline. As uh, always, I'll link them in the show notes if you'd like to do your own investigation. Really only going to name one or two of them in here, I think, but there's a lot that I looked at. Starting at usatoday.com, headline, Disgusting Satanic Temple Display at State Capitol in Iowa Sparks Free Speech Battle. Well, the Satanists are at it again, it seems. This is pretty much every year somewhere in the country. The Satanists want their share of airtime with some sort of satanic something alongside a Christmas nativity scene. This year, the one that uh, won the news lottery happens to be at the Iowa State Capitol. In early December, the Satanic Temple of Iowa, with permission, placed a statue of the Satanic deity Baphomet and a just kind of a small Satanic altar next to him. Baphomet is a human-bodied ram-headed thing with impressive horns. Uh, this statue is very fancy. In fact, the goat head is covered in silver mirrored pieces, making it look very blingy. The, the ram head demon statue has kind of a very nice wreath that's leaned up against it with a little satanic pentagram in the middle of it. The altar looks to be about three feet deep, maybe six feet long, with an excessive amount of electric candles adorning it. So many candles that it kind of makes one think that Baphomet might be compensating for something don't know. The altar also has the seven fundamental tenets of Satanism displayed. Now, in case you're curious, and yes, you're welcome that I'm willing to really jack up my search algorithms for this, the seven fundamental tenets are, one, one should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason. Number two, the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. Number three, one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. Yes, I can't say that word. Number four, the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another, is to forego one's own. Number five, beliefs should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. Number six, People are fallible. If one makes a mistake, one should do one's best to rectify it and resolve any harm that might have been caused. Number seven, every tenet is a guiding principle designed to inspire nobility in action and thought. The spirit of compassion, wisdom, and justice should always prevail over the written or spoken word. Now, tell me you disagree with these. On the surface, I could probably agree with, I don't know, 90% of what they said, at least from a humanist standpoint. Of course, once I add in, you know, religious principles and, and really understand the context and the meaning behind what they're saying, I'm sure there'd be a larger amount of disagreement. But I mean, overall, right, they don't sound bad. Now, that said, this little shrine caused all sorts of buzz. One state representative, Brad Sherman, a Republican, called it a disgusting display and said that it should be removed immediately. He further called, quote, for clarifying legislation to be adopted in accordance with our state constitution that prohibits satanic displays in our Capitol building and on all state-owned property. Tacked onto that proposal was a second proposal to allow for the display of the Ten Commandments in all state buildings and public schools. He further said that Iowans in general are disgusted by this, but due to freedom of speech and religion, there's likely very little that could be done. Representative John Dunwell, a Republican and an ordained minister, said that although he's getting a lot of blowback for his stance, although he personally finds it objectionable, the fact of the matter is that per the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution and laws of the state of Iowa, and the way that Iowa has acted for the last number of years, Either all displays are allowed, or none are. We'll come back to both Representatives Dunwell and Sherman in a bit. 
For informational purposes, as that's what I try to do here, you know, give you information, the name Baphomet first popped into being in a trial against the Knights Templar in 1307. Baphomet is supposed to be a symbol of balance in occult and mystical traditions, but is sometimes viewed as a demon or a deity. The sabbatic goat form was given to Baphomet in 1856 and was drawn in a way that was supposed to symbolize balance. It's half human, half animal. It's both male and female. It's both good and evil. It was drawn by the artist Eliphaz Levi to represent perfect social order. One other side note that you might find interesting when looking at the pentagram, when the point of the five-point star is pointing down, that symbolizes Satanism. Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, created their logo, the Sigil of Baphomet, based off of Eliphaz Levi's description of what he thought the pentagram symbolized. With the point down, we often see it symbolized with the goat or ram's head inside the pentagram, the two upper points being the horns, the two to the side being the ears, the bottom being the beard. Levi felt that the inverted star symbolized, quote, matter over spirit and placed sexual desires in a position of power over reason and logic. Okay, another side, side note, the Church of Satan doesn't actually worship Satan. In fact, they don't even really believe in Satan or God or demons or anything like that. They're actually atheistic. They, they view morals and values as personal and subjective. And they view the figure of Satan as symbolizing the pride, liberty, and individualism of humanity at its highest potential. Back to the pentagram, when the point is upright, pointing up, it represents Wicca or witchcraft. Each point represents an element. The bottom two are earth and fire. The two out to the sides are air and water. The one pointing up is spirit, as in spiritual enlightenment. As with Satanists, witches also don't worship Satan or believe that there's a god or a Satan either. They're also atheistic. But whereas Satanists generally worship themselves, Wicca generally worships nature, thus the elements of the pentagram. The worship, reverence, and nurture of nature leads to a higher plane of spirituality, whatever that means. Truth be told, the environmental movement is, for all intents and purposes, Wiccan. The, the worship of nature is the core religion of witchcraft, as it is with the Green Movement. Something to think about there. little information you never knew. But now you do, and as G.I. Joe taught us, knowing is half the battle. Go Joe. Back to our little ram-headed, excessively candled altered shrine, Governor Kim Reynolds got into the mix by releasing a statement on Tuesday, December 12th, about a week after the shrine was erected. She said, quote, Like many Iowans, I find the satanic temple's display in the capital absolutely objectionable. In a free society, the best response to objectionable speech is more speech, and I encourage all of those of faith to join me today in praying over the Capitol and recognizing the nativity scene that will be on display, the true reason for the season. Good. At the prayer vigil on Tuesday, she further said, quote, Faithful Iowans gathered in the Capitol Rotunda to display the nativity and pray for peace. Free speech is a right afforded to all, but how we use it matters. Today's event is proof that in the battle between good and evil, good will always prevail. Well, on that Thursday, I guess from what I'm being told by all right-wing media sources, every conservative and Christian out there, good prevailed, I guess. Good showed up in the form of a 35-year-old Navy Reserve instructor pilot who took it upon himself to destroy the statue and the shrine. In a show of raw bravery, he fearlessly charged the inanimate object, threw it to the ground, beheaded the statue, and smashed the mirrored ram's head on the ground damaging the statue beyond repair. He also knocked the altar thingy and the electric candles over, so take that. And almost immediately, every right-leaning media source, many of those I follow on X and Facebook, they all started speaking of this hero. A meme popped up with Mr. Cassidy's face saying, Death to Satan, Jesus Christ is King. Jack Posobiec, I'm probably saying that name wrong, who I follow on X for some reason, I really don't know why I follow him, was overjoyed at this well-deserved victory over Satan. Posobiec, or Posobiec, or I don't know how he says his name, is a right-wing, former military, current commentator, political something or other. I don't really know. I can't remember why I followed him. I don't really care. Depending on who you ask, though, he might be Satan. He and many others shared this victory over Satan on his ex. Now, 
As this is vandalism, you know, per law, Cassidy was charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief. Get back into that in a little bit. Somebody put up a crowdfunding campaign for his legal defense, which hit the goal of $20,000 in, I think it was three hours. Now, I'm not sure what his defense is. I mean, he's guilty of vandalism. Can't imagine this carries that stiff of a penalty. Cover that later. Cassidy, after his harrowing battle with what really amounts to an art project, posted on his X page, 1 Peter 5.8, in KJV, of course, quote, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Okay, yes. Not the statue, but yes, I agree, Satan does do that. I kept seeing more and more stories and posts about this unprecedented victory against Satan and finally replied, choosing Jack Posobiec's post, and I said this, quote, My question, as a Christian, what did he actually accomplish? Do I agree with the statue? No. Do I care? Also no. This didn't change minds of those that placed it. He didn't actually do anything except get in legal trouble. This is not our place to do this sort of thing. I had a response by Alternative Future, quote, Jesus flipped tables in a church. If you can't at least celebrate the destruction of Satan, I am sorry you aren't a Christian. You are just an enlightened secularist with Christian values. To which I replied, quote, uh, This didn't destroy Satan. This knocked over a stupid statue, not even an idol as people weren't worshiping it. The Iowa State House isn't the temple, so flipping the tables is a stupid analogy. Answer my question. What did this actually do? How did it further the gospel? To which Mr. Future replied, quote, People are worshiping Satan in the satanic temple. They are just playing the innocent atheist on the outside. To which I replied yet again, quote, Right. That didn't address the thing I said, but okay. And that's where that ended. See, here's the thing. In the middle of the rotunda, a Christmas tree flanked by a relatively small nativity scene sits for all to see and walk past, etc. From the best I can tell, off to the backside of the Capitol, next to a staircase, stood the shrine to Satan. On the other side of the stairway, or at least close to the Ram Man, was another small sign from the Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF, with the Statue of Liberty, Washington, Franklin, and I don't know, probably Jefferson, saying to keep religion and government separate. This display wasn't vandalized. Why not? See, here's the thing. I maintain that everyone celebrating this victory over Satan is wrong, and worse, blatantly hypocritical. As I stated in my ex-post, what exactly did this accomplish? Nothing, except for a bunch of backslapping and congratulating each other for a job well done, except for a few people taking pictures in front of the ram demon, a few people bowing or praying to the thing. It wasn't a place of worship. It was nothing but a stunt. And by this guy vandalizing it, those on the right making a huge deal about it, well, we played right into their desire to, to get some press, get some airtime. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine. It's your prerogative. But as we should do in so many situations... Let's just kind of flip the script, huh? What if Satanists or atheists came in and beheaded baby Jesus in the nativity scene and then celebrated their victory? Would you be okay with that? Your answer can't be no to one and yes to the other. Either you're fine with all vandalization of any religious displays based on the disgust or over-emotionalism of an individual, or you're not fine with it. This is the garbage we've been railing against over the last few years with these woke politicians and woke voters ripping down statues across the country because they don't like them. Your personal feelings on the matter, no matter how well-intentioned, mean nothing. Representative Sherman, who wanted to have it removed and create legislation to prohibit satanic displays and have additional legislation to display the Ten Commandments, said that the Iowa Constitution states that the people are grateful to the supreme being, that there is one supreme God, and because of that, the law is being twisted and tortured in order to allow a satanic display. But statements in the state constitution aren't laws. And to be honest, those statements about the supreme being well, they don't apply universally to all Iowans, as only about 77% claim to be Christian of any stripe, including Catholic and cults like Mormon and Jehovah's Witness. So clearly not all Iowans would agree with the Constitution as written, even. But taking it a step further, if you want to prohibit all satanic displays, well, how do you define that? Because if you're not rightly worshiping God, I'd maintain that you're worshiping Antichrist or Satan. So the small Freedom From Religion Foundation sign? That's satanic. A Mormon display? 
would be satanic. Islam would be satanic. I don't see anywhere that Sherman said something about the little FFRF sign. I highly doubt he'd be so adamant about keeping a Mormon Christmas display out of the state house. But this is Satan, you say. But no, it's not. It's an idol. At best, it's an idol. Although, to be honest, an idol is only an idol if it's worshipped. You know, like a sports team or Taylor Swift. So I guess since a few people decided to worship at this makeshift altar, fine. It's an idol. Whatever. An idol fashion of wood, plastic metal, made by human hands, carried into position, unable to defend itself because it's a statue. It's not a god of any kind. Representative Dunwell, remember the ordained pastor, he said this, quote, The display is an inanimate object that has no real power in and of itself. We have nothing to fear. The primary response required is prayer. And then he likely added under his breath, fight me on it. Uh, probably not, but he should have. So when our hero valiantly vanquished this craft project, was Satan defeated? No. To be honest, it just makes Christians look like law-breaking, vandalizing jerks. I'd argue that Satan, if anything, got a victory in this. None of the face masks, which should tell you all you need to know about them, Satanists that put this display in place had their minds changed. Not one person that was anti-Christian saw this and said, whoa, if Christians can just defeat Satan that easy, where do I sign? I mean, this was sheer childish emotional stupidity, and the guy that did it should be ashamed and apologetic for breaking the law to try to prove a point. If God wanted the statue beheaded, he doesn't need our help to do it. 1 Samuel 5, when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, we read, quote, Now the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon, by the way, was a fish-headed, human-bodied god. Then the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But they arose early the next morning, and behold... Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of Yahweh, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. See, if God wanted this thing beheaded, he could have taken care of it. We didn't need to break any laws and have a hissy fit to help God out. And that's what it comes down to, really, the law, right? And if they want to create new laws to say that only XYZ is acceptable or anything ABC is prohibited, that's fine. They can do that. Let the legislature take it up. Craft the bill, vote it into law, or allow the people to vote it in if they desire that. That's the right way to address this. However, as our pastor friend, Representative Dunwell, rightly said, they can change the rules if they like, but, quote, My observation as an Iowan and a state representative, I don't want the state evaluating and making determinations about religions. I am guided by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And again, he's absolutely right. Now, personally, I don't even think the First Amendment needs to come into play in this discussion. I just flat don't think the state should make rules on religions. That moves us into the realm of a theocracy, and as I've said many, many times before, we don't want to be a theocracy. Every time it's been done, it's been done wrong. Dunwell added, quote, I would rather have an evil, blasphemous display or no display at all than have the state dictate what they think is appropriate. I have been shocked so many want to give up their freedom so they don't have to see a display they disagree with. This pastor slash representative being demonized ironically by those on the Christian conservative right is absolutely correct. Over the last few years, we Americans and we conservatives and Christians have been willing to forego our freedoms and liberate ourselves of liberty in order for the state to keep us safe or Keep us from the horrors of having military bases named after people we now deem as bad or remove statues because they hurt our feelings or whatever. We are all willingly enslaving ourselves to the state, exactly what Marxism wants. The state will be our protector, our provider, our God. Side note again, for those that know me, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. He did a few good things as president. He did a lot of bad. He missed even more opportunities. This year, he's more emotionally compromised because he is hell-bent on revenge. If the country benefits from his tirade, fine, but he wants revenge. And I bring him up because have you noticed the amount of messianic language he's been using in his speeches about how he'll be our vengeance, he'll be our peacemaker? I had a list of 
about a half a dozen articles that I casually found, I was not looking for them, from different speeches where he made some sort of self-deified comment. I don't want him to be my vengeance or my peacemaker. I want the president to preside over the country per the laws as written and work to preserve the Constitution and promote freedom and liberty. I have a God that I'm quite happy with. I don't need one sitting in the Oval Throne Room, be it on the right or the left. Look, I've covered this before, but the phrase separation of church and state isn't in the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not in any Constitution of any state. It's not a law. It was a response to a pastor in a letter from Thomas Jefferson. And the phrase in context is saying that the state will keep their nose out of the religion of the people. You worship how you'd like as long as you're not infringing on others. To be honest, the satanic shrine was small and nuzzled up against the stairwell. The FFRF sign was smaller still and right next to the stairs. The Christmas tree and nativity scene were in the very center of the Capitol Rotunda, first floor. It could easily be argued that the Christian display is more likely to interfere with the freedom of others than either of the other displays. Now to Dunwell's point, when you give the state a power, that power can be turned against you. The people may trust their elected officials to promote Christianity now, but how long before Christianity is out of vogue and new people are voted in and let's say Islam is deemed to be the religion of the state? Oh, that'll never happen, Dan. Yeah, you willing to take that chance? There are doors that in a fallen sin-cursed world you don't open because once they're open, the chances of them ever being closed again is somewhere between nil and zed. We do not want to walk down the path of a theocracy because by definition, that's simply a state or a country ruled by a religious authority. There's nothing saying which religious authority. The state should stay neutral. If they don't want satanic displays, then don't have any displays and just stay out of the religious world altogether. The representatives, they can have their own beliefs. They can make their own displays in their own offices, on their own office doors, but don't make a statement as a state to say Christianity yes, Satan no. That will be flipped on its head eventually and will be responsible for the thing that now we just don't like. And now we're stuck with it. All right. Mr. Cassidy, he was offended by the statue, which is why he acted like a petulant child and broke a doll, throwing the blinged out ram head into the garbage. He absolutely has the right to be offended. He doesn't have the right to act like a child. I hate to bring the Bible into this, but he does claim Christianity. So Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Mm-hmm. The reality is we can all be offended many, many times every single day. Christians, I'd argue, more so than non-Christians. Does that mean that we throw a tantrum every time we're offended? No. Mr. Pastor Representative Dunwell is right. This is something to pray over. That's enough. Prayer, shockingly, is plenty. This world to the Christian is offensive. If you're a Christian and you're not offended pretty much every single day as a Christian, you either live a very sheltered life or you've just moved the goalpost to a point where what should offend you just doesn't anymore. That's a sign of at least a compromised conscience. If that describes you, well, welcome to the club. I think all Christians are compromised and compromisers. I honestly don't know how we'd navigate this world if we weren't compromising on some things. For proof, just look at the causes that your favorite stores contribute to. Home Depot, Kroger, Walmart, Lowe's. Pick any clothing store, any grocery store, any big box store, any fast food restaurant. Yes, even Chick-fil-A. And on the list goes. Look at who they contribute to. But because Mr. Cassidy acted rashly on his offense... He has a Give, Send, Go page for his legal defense that has now raised just under $78,000 in like five days. Now, the information given, in part, states, quote, Out of the millions of Christians in this nation, Cassidy was the first to act in bravery and conviction. He was not willing to see God reviled, especially in a building where lawmakers are supposed to honor Jesus Christ as king and look to his law for wisdom as they legislate with justice and righteousness. Cassidy said in an interview with the Sentinel, I saw this blasphemous statue and was outraged. My conscience is held captive to the word of God, not to bureaucratic decree. And so I acted. Help this conservative Christian, a man of courage, in an age of cowardice, defend himself in court. Um, how about no? Again, he did nothing to further the gospel. He did nothing to further the kingdom. He did nothing to thwart the enemy. This wasn't bravery. This wasn't courage. 
This was a fit over, at most, an idol that would have been taken down in a few weeks anyway. They initially thought it would take about $20,000 to defend this man-child, quote, but his attorneys will challenge the investigation and now anticipate much higher expenses. His legal team believes it is not yet appropriate to reveal details of the investigation. In the event that excess funds are raised, they will be forwarded at the discretion of Cassidy to a nonprofit that helps Christian service members in similar situations. In similar situations? Are there a lot of these hissy fit situations happening? Are service members the ones doing it? As a service member, as a Christian, as a Christian service member, shouldn't we expect him to act with dignity? I'd sure like to see the video of him vanquishing Satan. I'm sure it's very dignified. So they stated that this is a building where lawmakers are supposed to honor Jesus Christ as king. That would be nice, I agree, but about a third of the Senate and just over a third of the House are Democrats. And despite what most of them would probably claim, I'm sorry, you can't honor Jesus as king and vote for the policies you're voting for. So there are bigger fish to fry than a ramhead man doll. As I stated, he's being charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief. According to Iowa Code 716.6, criminal mischief in the fourth and fifth degrees, this charge results if you, for example, alter or remove a road sign or alter or remove a survey marker or likely what he's being charged for, quote, the cost of replacing, repairing, or restoring the property that is damaged, defaced, altered, or destroyed exceeds $300 but does not exceed $750. Like I said, this was an art project. This is labeled a serious misdemeanor in the code, meaning if convicted, he could face a maximum sentence of one year in prison and a fine between $430 and $2,560. Look, actions have consequences. Now, I highly doubt he'd do time, maybe a token 30 days and a year probation, plus a little fine, especially in a very red Iowa. He's not getting sent up the river for a year on this. But if he is, well... Do the crime, do the time, dude. His best defense would be to plead guilty, apologize, and ask the court to be lenient. He's not going to do that, though. So that's good. They'll donate any excess to some charity, that, I don't know, service members that are throwing fits. But, but think of what could have been done with this whole $78,000, not just whatever's left over. Let me give you one example. Preborn Ministries. This is a nonprofit that provides ultrasound machines to pregnancy clinics. They also provide free ultrasounds to hundreds of thousands of women every year. They show the women considering abortion her actual living, heart beating baby. At the same time, they share the gospel with these women and their boyfriends or husbands. If needed, they come alongside for weeks, months, even years afterward to help her or them raise and care for the child. Each ultrasound costs $28. That's it. For $78,000, we could have shown 2,785 mothers considering abortion their child. The statistics say that when a woman sees the ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, it doubles the chance that she'll choose to allow her baby to live. That $78,000 could have gone to save the lives of what? 1,500, maybe 2,000 babies? Seems more important, more impactful than defending a man who pretended he was Highlander with a goat-headed mannequin. It doesn't have to be preborn. Pick your favorite Christian, Bible-believing, gospel-sharing, charity, church, missionary. $78,000 is still a lot of money, even today. <sighs> I think I'll stop here. I'm just, I'm so disgusted by the actions that this man took, and even more so, the conservative and Christian response calling him a hero. I could go into what the Bible says about anger, about patience, about turning the other cheek, about not being surprised if the world hates us because the world hates Jesus. I won't, but don't tempt me. This man, by his actions, accomplished nothing. Uh, that's not exactly true. He accomplished nothing positive. I can't find one pro to what he decided to do, and I can find so many cons. When we, as Christians, act as hypocrites, for example, we break the law in an egregious, highly visible way like this, we show the world that we're no different from them. If he had stood with the prayer vigil in the Capitol, if he had started a crowdfunding campaign to give to a Christian-based organization as a response to evil in this world, if he had done any number of things, he could have put out a positive message, like Mr. Pastor Representative Dunwell, who's being skewered for what he correctly and has accurately said. My Christian brothers and sisters, we must do better. We don't need to act rashly. We aren't on this earth to enact our vengeance. God will handle that. 
I'm far from a pacifist. I don't believe that Christians are called to be pacifists, but we should use our God-given self-control, logic, patience, discernment before doing something. You know, think first, act later, and we should not be toting this guy around on our collective shoulders. If anything, he did damage to the message of the gospel, to Christianity. <sighs> okay, let me have it. What do you think? Where have I missed something? What do you think this did for the furtherance of the kingdom of God? Are we called to do this sort of thing? Or did I nail it? Did I turn you around on this? Let me know. Comment on this episode. Shoot me an email. Contact infos in the show notes. Go. Genesis 1, as told through the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible. The time when Ertang went star, God make the sky and the world. The world comes so no more nothing inside, no more shape, nothing. On top the wild ocean to cover Ertang, never had light, nothing. Only had God's spirit there, moving around over the water. Then God tell, I like light for shine, and the light start for shine. God see how good the light. Then he put the light on one side and the dark on the other side. The light time, he give him the name daytime. The dark time, he give him the name nighttime. So had the nighttime and the daytime as day number one. Then God tell, I like it something inside the middle for no let the water up there and the water underneath come together. And that's what God do. God makes something for no let the water up there and the water underneath come together. The ting inside the middle, God give him the name the sky. Had the nighttime and the daytime as day number two. Then God tell, I like the water under the sky come together one place so that it get dry land. And that's what God went do. The dry ground, God give him the name land. And the water that when come together one side, he give him the name ocean. God looked the dry ground and the ocean and he tell, real, real good all that. Then God tell, I like the land get all different kind plants, the kind plants that get the seed, and the kind trees that get fruits with the seed inside everything, and that's what God do. So the land get all different kind plants, the kind plants that get seed, and the kind trees that get fruits with the seed inside everything. And God looked the plants, and he tell, real, real good all that, had the nighttime and the daytime as day number three. Then God tell, I like put lights up there inside the sky, the sun and moon and stars. That's for make daytime different than the nighttime. That's for show the parts, uh, the year, for the tings and the days and the years. I like it lights up there inside the sky for shine light all over the world. And that's what God went do. God make the two big lights. The big light he make them for be the main one, daytime. And the other light he make them for be the main one, nighttime. God put the lights up there inside the sky for shine light on top the ground, daytime and nighttime, and for make the light and the dark different. And God looked the day and the night, and he tell, real, real good all that, had the nighttime and the daytime as day number four. Then God tell, inside the water, I like it choke different kind things that live there. Up inside the sky, I like it plenty bird and all kind things that fly up over the ground. God make all the big kind fish and other kind things that live inside the ocean. Choke plenty small kind fish and other kind things that move around inside the water. And all kind birds and bugs with wings. And God looked at things inside the water and the things to fly and he tell, real, real good all that. Then God tell the fish and birds and all the other kind life, I give you the power for you do everything I went make you for do. So I like you get plenty babies and fill up the ocean with them. You birds too. I like you for do same thing and fill up the world. Had the nighttime and the daytime as day number five. Then God tell, I like the land get all kind different things. The animals that live with people and the small kind animals and the wild animals. That's what went happen. God make them all. All kind wild animals and all kind animals that live with people and all the small kind animals that run around on top the ground. And God looked at animals and he tell, real, real good all that. Then God tell, now I like make people. I like them be just like me, just like one copy. They gon' be in charge of everything. The fish inside the ocean, the birds inside the sky, the animals, all the land, and all the small kind animals that go around on top the ground. So God make the people. 
Same, same, just like one copy of him. He make guy kind and wag kind. Then God tell him, I give you guys the power for you do everything I wouldn't make you for do. So born plenty babies and fill up the world with them and take over. You guys in charge of the fish inside the ocean and the birds inside the sky and all the animals that move around on top the ground. And God tell this too. You know what? I give you guys all the plants all over the world that make seed and all the trees that make fruits with the seed inside. That's for you guys eat and for all the wild animals and for all the birds inside the sky and for all the animals moving around on top the ground. Everything that stay alive, I give them all the grasses and other kind green plants for the food. And that's what God went do. God look everything he went make and he tell real, real good all that. And had the nighttime and the daytime as day number six. Now, before you scream that I'm culturally appropriating, I want you to know I'm well aware of that. I'll sleep soundly tonight just the same. I also want you to know that I read that as per the actual spelling. Navigating through an almost infinite amount of red incorrect spelling squiggles and double blue improper grammar lines, which necessarily requires you to read it in some sort of a horrible accent that crosses... Like Jamaican with the writing of certain characters found in Mark Twain novels. Lastly, I want you to know that I absolutely love the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible. No, it's not my regular go-to, but it puts such a such an earthy feel to what you're reading. I don't know how theologically accurate it is in general, but but in this case, I'd say that the story of creation in Genesis, or as they call the first book of the Bible, Start, is spot on. It's such a simple story. It's really hard to get wrong. It's hard to misunderstand. It's hard to misinterpret. But here we are, wise, wise man. Homo sapien sapien. We've moved past that old dusty document. We're more enlightened now. We have science. I sure wish God would have had science back when man cobbled together the figurative poetry that in no way represents reality that became the book of start. Uh, Genesis, if only they had known about the millions of years and the, the ground teeming with fossils, the process of evolution, well, then humanity, such as it was back then, could have perhaps evolved at a much faster rate. And maybe today we'd have real hoverboards and flying Jetsons cars. Uh, but no, no, no. You know, over the holidays, a few interesting theological topics came up with my family. One was the movement that seems to be gaining traction, or likely gaining traction again, as nothing is new under the sun, that Satan really wasn't a bad guy at all. It's just a misunderstood, sympathetic being that was trying to help humanity get out from under the tyrannical thumb of a power-crazed, self-proclaimed God. In part, I think we have Disney to blame for this, as in the free time they have between pushing tranny culture on the kids and feminizing every movie franchise they get their hands on, they're systematically changing all the villains from cartoons and movies past into misunderstood, well-meaning characters that, ah, that just had a rough go of it. The other topic that briefly came up was the movement, the heresy that Jesus, while on earth, only endorsed the obvious fairy tale that is the creation story— because he wasn't God at that time. He didn't know any better, because as a human, he only knew what he was taught. So there was no way he could know that the Genesis account of creation wasn't real, as his father, his teachers, the religious leaders of his time were simply relating the same mytho-history they were told. Now, I'm not good with my heresies, but I think this is the canonic heresy, uh, that Jesus fully emptied himself of anything God-related while on earth, and was simply a man no different in any way than you or I. Yeah, it's not really biblical, thus a heresy. So keeping that in mind, let's do a bit more background work. Have you ever heard, in relation to the theory of evolution, the paradox of stasis? Yeah, me neither, at least until today. So, Pulling a very summarized definition from a paper found on academic.oup.com, absent all the attributions littered in the paragraph, the link is in the notes as always if you want to read it in full, we find that, quote, the paradox of stasis or the problem of stasis has long been a focus of debate among evolutionary biologists. At the foundation of the paradox is the pattern commonly seen in the fossil record of long periods of morphological stasis despite the potential for, and occasionally the appearance of, rapid evolution. Although the generality of stasis has been disputed, the many instances in which it clearly occurs demand explanation. 
let me put this in layman's terms. Evolution is supposed to be always evolving. You and I may ask and probably have asked the question, why don't we see humans evolve today? Well, the answer is invariably that evolution is too slow. It's just very tiny, almost imperceptible changes over long, long periods of time. So in our small, finite lifetimes, we likely never see any evolutionary change large enough to notice it. Seems plausible, right? Or it seems like a good excuse. It's akin to saying, oh, oh, it's happening. Trust me. <laughs> oh, oh, it's happening. The problem that's been around for what seems like millions of years now is that when looking in the fossil record, the number of transitionary fossils, these so-called missing links that display slight evolutionary changes, they're curiously absent. And as the summary stated, there are long periods of time, hundreds of thousands of years, millions, tens of millions of years, as determined by the layers of the earth per the evolutionary theory, where identical fossils of species of animals are found with absolutely no evolution occurring at all. Per the theory, that shouldn't be. But as all great scientists know, there must be an answer to this paradoxical question. They just need to discover it. Enter an article found on studyfinds.org. Headline, doesn't make any sense. Rules of evolutionary biology upended by lizards. Now, I hate snakes, but lizards are cool. Add some legs to that snake and we can be friends. Take them off, and I don't care if you're beneficial or eat whatever. You're my sworn enemy, and I will scream like a little girl as I try to hit you with a shovel. So this article is outlining a study that was performed to test the paradox of stasis. Let's start by quoting a bit of this article. Quote, Ever since Charles Darwin put forth his idea that evolution is an ever-present, constantly occurring phenomenon, rewarding the fittest with survival, scientists have scrutinized the theory. Centuries ago, most of Darwin's contemporaries argued that if living beings were constantly changing due to evolution, then how can two fossils from the same species found in the same area look identical despite being 50 million years apart in age? In more recent decades, scientists have seen a flurry of evolutionary studies proving that evolution can and does occur rapidly, even from just one generation to the next. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. First of all, notice the anthropomorphic language, language that gives human conscious traits to something that's not human. Evolution rewards the fittest with survival, but does it? No, it doesn't. Evolution, by definition, does nothing. Evolution is nothing but a philosophical theory. Survival of the fittest is just that. The members of a species that are most able to survive in their environment will, while the others will not. Now, we'll ignore the 50 million years thing for now. I've discussed this age topic many times before. It's, it's simply an unprovable hypothesis that relies on just massive assumptions. But what about these contemporaries arguing for what's now termed the paradox of stasis? Let me add one more question that I've mentioned before. Why does evolution seem to have a singular starting point? And why does evolution appear to be done? You're telling me that in 4.7 billion years of this planet being formed, only one lightning strike happened at the right spot, in the right conditions, with the right chemical soup to start evolution? I'm not sure which end of that question is more implausible. And if evolution is a constant process, why are there not an abundance of transitionary creatures, both living and dead, that are moving from one species to another, just struggling for life? Why does it appear that evolution was, isn't now, but we're told it still is? I know, I know. Small changes over a long period of time. I got it, I got it. And I'm sorry, but whatever umbrage is, I'm going to take it over the statement that rapid evolution has been proven. That's simply a lie. Again, it's another theory, another hypothesis that's never been proven because it can't be proven, but they must have it be true or else even more problems present themselves with their overall theory. Either that or this author is simply conflating two different definitions of evolution uh, to confuse us. See, there's something we call microevolution, which is simply small changes within a species over time, usually a relatively short time, like maybe a few generations. This is why we can see coloration changes, shapes of specific features change, etc. This is why the average height of man has grown slightly over the course of even my lifetime. Much to my chagrin, this isn't evolution, as the species never changes, it, it's just features. And if the author is talking about this kind of evolution being rapid and proven, Okay, sure, I'll go with that. But if he's doing that, 
He's conflating this term with what's termed macroevolution, which is a very, very disingenuous thing to do and completely deceptive. Now, macroevolution is what most everyone thinks of when speaking of evolution, the changing from one kind of thing to another. There is a theory of rapid macroevolution, but again, all that is is the evolutionary scientist version of the god of the gaps that they always claim Christians run to, which we absolutely don't. And it's never been proven. It's just stated as fact. <laughs> How did this kind of animal get to that kind of animal in only a single strata of Earth with no transitionary evidence at all? Mm. I mean, it was, it was real fast. It was like so fast, you don't even know. <clears throat> Continuing on, we come to the paradox. Quote, if evolution can happen so quickly, why have most species on Earth continued to appear the same for millions of years? Now that is a good scientific question. I got a buck says that they botched the answer. Well, James Stroud, the assistant professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology, set up a long-term study to try to answer this question. To do this, he utilized a population of a-hole lizards, I'm sorry, that's anole lizards, on a small island in the Fairchild Tropical Botanical Gardens in Coral Gables, Florida. Mr. Stroud's working theory, which is the most common explanation as to why this paradox is seen, is that, quote, Natural selection is working to stabilize a species' appearance with the assumption that an average form will help them survive the best. The problem is, when people do field studies, they almost never find that this kind of stabilizing selection actually exists. <clears throat> Let's stop there again for a moment, shall we? Notice more of the anthropomorphic language. Natural selection is working. Now it's actually a conscious force, apparently, just fervently striving toward a goal. Well, that's not true. Natural selection selects, naturally, meaning there's nothing behind it except for what survives and what doesn't. He also said that it's doing this with the assumption that an average form will promote the optimum level of survival. Again, natural selection neither doesn't nor can't assume anything. It's not a conscious being. And when he says average form, by whose definition of average? He's making, again, an unprovable, unsubstantiated, unscientific assumption, he can assume, he's a conscious being, that literally all the creatures, every species that we at least know about, have reached their optimum average for their optimum survival. Really? Chickens? Cows? Sloths? Turtles that can't flip back over? Whales that can't get off a beach? Need I go on? This doesn't even seem like a serious theory. It, it's laughable on its face. And the reason field studies can't find this proof is because it's a stupid theory that can't be proven. <clears throat> Sorry, should be nicer. So four different species of these, ah, I don't want to screw this up again, let's just say lizards, were stalked and captured somehow, despite them being at their optimal average design for optimal survivability, by Stroud and his team through the use of long fishing poles with cute little tiny lassos on the end like little lizard cowboys. They scooped them off the trees or wherever, brought them back to the lab, and completely scarred them for the rest of their tiny green lives by measuring the heads, legs, feet, weight, and stickiness of their toes, then given a number and marked with a teeny tiny tag under their skin, and then these lizards were then released back into the wild at the exact spot they were taken from, where they could look around asking, what the heck just happened? And then not be believed by any of their friends when they tell them the story. But that's not where it ended. Oh, no, no, no. Like some sick, twisted alien species, Stroud and the boys came back every six months for three years, wrangled their herd of lizards back to the lab, more measurements, releasing them again, making note of which lizards survived and which didn't. After the three years, they had a solid amount of data, probably made a bunch of tables and charts and graphs, which is exactly what I would do, and analyzed survival rates based on the various measured traits of the lizards. Now, this theoretically would result in the traits that would predict higher survival rates and display natural selection in action in a somewhat closed ecosystem. So let's break here just for a second and talk about these, uh, these lizard species. The average male is about eight inches long. The average female is about five to six inches long, unless they identify as a different gender than that assigned at birth, at which point things get more complicated. But just for a lark, let's go with the standard historical only two gender thing. If they're happy, probably like they were just prior to being lassoed, they'll be a bright, beautiful green. 
If they're severely stressed, probably like they were after being replaced from whence they were abducted, they'll be a dark brown color with a very puzzled look on their pointy faces, I'm assuming. The average lifespan for these lizards is four years, so in Stroud's three-year long-term study, per Stroud's words, he didn't even cover the average lifespan of these lizards. When looking at potential health issues, these little guys are considered relatively robust as far as little lizards go, which, duh, they've been evolutionarily optimized by this point. I mean, is nobody listening to Stroud? A funny story, though, seems like one of the very few health issues that can affect these guys is stress. From ReptileDirect.com, quote, improper handling or even too much handling can stress out your green anole. Stress can cause your pet to become more susceptible to infections and other health problems. Did anyone tell Stroud this? They also caution us about careful handling. Don't pick it up by the tail. That'll snap off in a heartbeat, which I guess is the optimum thing for tails to do. You should only pick it up gently by the belly. And I'm looking, scanning, speed reading here. Nope, I'm probably missing it, but I, I just don't see anything about fishing pole lassos. No matter, I'm sure Stroud knows what he's doing. He is a scientist, after all. Now, I've got one other question. What is their reproduction rate? Their gestation cycle. Well, I had to move to another site, wannabenaturalist.com, to find this, and, well, I just feel I need to tell you the best way to identify the males from females, is this may come in handy someday, or something. It really doesn't matter. Just go with me on this. Quote, It is often hard to differentiate males from females with the naked eye. The easiest and most accurate way to determine the sex of an anal is to use at least a 10x magnifier and look for enlarged post-anal scales on the underside of the tail. The male has them, and the female doesn't. Of course the male has those. That's just about optimally perfect, isn't it? So the mating season typically goes from April to September, give or take, upon pouring the wine and turning the lights down low, putting on a little berry white, and engaging in the hibbity-dibbity, the female will typically lay an average of one egg per week during the mating season. So in an approximately four-month season, she could lay 15 to 18 eggs in general. About a month after being laid, the egg hatches, and out pops a couple-inch-long cute as a lizard-bouncing baby neonate. Now, I don't know if Stroud and company harassed and molested the newborns, but again, this three-year study, although admittedly much, much longer than I would have been willing to do it, but we all know my penchant for stick to seems to be a very, very short-lived study. Uh, let's return and wrap up this article of the study. I feel like we need to land this airship soon. So after three years of wreaking havoc across and terrorizing the island's lizard community, what did Stroud and his angels discover? Well, not really much of anything, to be honest. Quote, to his surprise, Professor Stroud found that the stabilizing form of natural selection, or that which maintains a species' same average features, was in actuality very rare. In fact, natural selection varied massively through time. Some years, lizards with longer legs survived in greater numbers, but during other years, lizards with shorter legs fared better. Other times, no clear pattern emerged at all. The most fascinating result is that natural selection was extremely variable through time. Professor Stroud explains, we often saw that selection would completely flip in direction from one year to the next. Okay, let's stop there for a tick. Now, I'm not a data analysis guy, but that's not completely true. I'm absolutely a data analysis guy. It's what I do. I collect data. I look for patterns. I take action. What Stroud found was nothing. A study resulting in... Complete random variability is just as good as no study at all, at least for what they were trying to discover. But Stroud, I think, disagrees. It seems like he considers this a victory. Quote, When combined into a long-term pattern, however, all this variation effectively canceled itself out. Species remained remarkably similar across the entire time period. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. So basically he's saying that species just they just kind of live. But no, he's not saying that. Of course, that's silly. Quote, evolution can and does happen. It's this ongoing process, but it doesn't necessarily mean things are constantly changing in the long run, Professor Stroud comments. Now we know that even if animals appear to be staying the same, evolution is still happening. According to the article's author, 
quote, never before has this level of insight been provided regarding how natural selection works on a community level, and certainly not with this level of detail. The lack of studies like this up until now is a major reason why scientists were never able to grasp how evolution works on the community level. Generally, researchers are usually unlikely to undertake a project like this because of the great amount of work and time required. <laughs> what? I mean, seriously, isn't that exactly what researchers are supposed to do? You know, do research? But to the larger point, here's what Stroud is claiming when you break it down. Evolution is completely real, and it's happening just all of the time all around us. Whether you see it or you don't, oh, it's there. Whether it changes anything or not, short-term or long-term, well, it's changing things, except when it's not, which it absolutely is just all of the time. If you see it, evolution. If you don't, evolution. If you have proof, that's evolution. If you have nothing, that's evolution. The problem is that Professor Stroud isn't a scientist. Not by any reasonable definition, Professor Stroud is quite simply a religious zealot for the Church of Evolution. See, scientists form a hypothesis, a, a guess at a conclusion that they then test and do everything they can to disprove. What Stroud is doing is determining his conclusion, then manipulating his data and his analysis to allegedly prove his conclusion. Stroud stated that, quote, understanding evolution is critical to understanding all life on Earth. But is it? And yes, apparently it is. Quote, understanding evolution doesn't only help us understand the plants and animals around us and how they're distributed across the world, he continues. It also shows us how life sustains itself in a world dominated by humans. For a very long time, evolutionary biologists have tried to figure out what was behind this paradox of stasis idea. What this study shows is that the answer may not be particularly complicated. We just had to conduct a study in the wild for a long enough time to figure it out. So evolution is changes over a long period of time, unless it's rapid, because there isn't evidence of transitional forms. And it's definitely taking place all the time, but not now, at least sort of not now. But it is definitely going on in every community right now as we sit here. We just can't see it. Or we can. But it's a random variable evolution, just maintaining the optimal survivability of every single species we have today, including the teeny tiny green lizards whose tails break off easily and can be snared with teeny tiny lassos and will get sick and die if overstressed. <laughs> Hashtag optimal. See, Professor Stroud must have his theory of evolution. He's got nothing else. For him to consider, as we read at the beginning of this segment, then God tell... I like the land and all kind different things, the animals that live with people, and the small kind animals and the wild animals, and that's what went happen. God make them all, all kind wild animals and all kind animals that live with people, and all the small kind animals that run around on top the ground. And God looked to animals and he tell, real, real good all that. See, God made all of the small kind of animals that run around on the top of the ground, and except for small variations within their kind over the 6,000 years or so since they were created, they've stayed the same. The reason Professor Stroud saw all sorts of randomness in his superty-duperty long study with which lizards lived and which they died is because a lizard is a lizard and will always be a lizard and produce lizards. Environmental factors can determine what traits, which are already present in the genetic code, are more fit to survival, and that can change from year to year, which is what Stroud saw. But at no time did Stroud see anything even remotely close to something that could be considered evolution. If he was truly doing science, he would have to conclude that maybe this evolution thing isn't true, or at the very least, there is no evolutionary explanation why we seem to be stuck in this paradox of stasis. Further, with no actual transitionary fossils, as that concept is really nothing but a call to fantasy in itself, when did this stasis occur? Did it occur at the same time for everything? Or do we have proof that it started at different points for different species? And why does it appear that today everything is stuck in this paradox of stasis? Another question, after 4.7 billion years of the Earth existing and 4 billion plus years of some form of life on Earth, humans in their current anatomic form, Homo sapiens popping on the scene potentially up to 800,000 years ago, how is it possible that we could even begin to entertain the idea that this one singular point in all of that history is the time where everything has reached its optimal survivability. And the unguided but totally conscious force of evolution is now just maintaining what it's done. On the 1.533 trillionth day, 
evolution rested, and it tell real, real good all that. As Romans one twenty five tells us, dem guys, they went throw out the true stuffs from God and keep the bulele kind stuff. They show respect for all the stuffs God went make, and they do all kind religious kind stuff for them. But the one that make everything, they no show love and respect for him, the God I stay talk about. The one you can talk good about him every time. That's it. Or as we probably more commonly know it, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Evolution is not a scientific theory. It's a religion. It's never been proven because it's simply unprovable. But man has pushed God to the side and worshipped the earth, the creatures, and most importantly, himself. They become foolish in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they show themselves to be absolute fools. Sadly, articles even as poorly written as this, about studies that start with conclusions, discover no supporting evidence, and end with their predetermined conclusion, will continue to dupe humanity that's not willing to dig into the data, or even logically think through the claims. And the evolutionary Pharisees will continue to strictly adhere to their doctrine and attempt to bully people into believing them, while trying to eliminate those who refuse to believe their false religion. If you want to do science, and, and you should, if you want to study aspects of this amazing world, and why would you not? If you want to delve into what you believe and why, which I'd maintain is of the utmost importance, you must allow yourself to analyze everything and let the data drive your conclusion. To do otherwise is not science, it's quite simply blind obedience to those who tell you to blindly obey them. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.